All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea. Hosea is one of the minor prophets. It's in the latter half of the Old Testament. Um, if you have a hard time finding it, no shame in your game. It's a hard one. But um, if you have your devices, it's much easier. Uh, we are beginning a new series called um, Spoken, a storytelling God. And it's all about how God reveals himself with story. Um, see, God communicates who he is in, in a lot of different ways. And uh, one of the primary ways that God reveals himself is through stories. For example, one of Jesus' primary uh, functions when he was uh, doing his three-year ministry here on earth was to reveal who God was. He even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, um, one, of, and, and one of the ways he did this was through stories that he called parables. And his parables always started out with a phrase like this, the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is compared to. And then he would tell the story. And in these stories, Jesus reveals more and more and more who God is and, um, and, and how we can relate to him. And so over the next several weeks and as we head into the summer months, um, we're going to look at some of these stories. We're going to spend probably most of our time looking at different parables. Um, but we're also going to look at a few stories in the Old Testament. Um, and, and the stories in the Old Testament are different in... In, than, they, than parables, um, the, the, the Old Testament stories come to us as stories, right, because they happened so long ago, but the Old Testament stories are about real people who had real interactions with God and in turn reveal, in turn reveal something about God, whereas the parables aren't necessarily about real people. They're more illustrative stories that Jesus tells to try and get us to understand who God is and what his kingdom is like. Um, the other thing I need to mention about Old Testament stories um, is that the Old Covenant always points to the New, right? We talked about this a few uh, couple weeks in, the, in our last series. Um, and because this is true, you never use New Testament scriptures to interpret the Old, Right? You always use Old Testament scriptures to interpret or help you understand spiritual truths of the New Covenant, right? Because the Old Testament is nothing but an illustrative type and shadow of the spiritual realities in the New Covenant. Does that make sense? You guys follow me? Okay. Um, and the story we're going to look at today is a perfect example of this, okay? So we're going to look at uh, the story of, about a guy named Hosea. And Hosea's story is an unusual love story. Hosea was just a regular guy. He was a regular Jewish guy who lived during the time when the kingdom of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And typically throughout the history of that period where the kingdom was divided, um, God's favor was mostly on Judah because they had more godly kings and not so much on the northern kingdom of Israel because they had really ungodly kings for the most part. Um, but So Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel and God placed a calling on his life to be a prophet to the king and the kingdom, which meant that God was going to give him messages that he was to deliver to the king, to the leaders, and to the people of the nation. 
But what makes Hosea's story so unusual is that rather than just give Hosea messages to go and deliver like he did with most prophets, God asked him to do something very strange so that he wouldn't just have a message to tell, so that his life would actually illustrate the message that he wanted to communicate, that God wanted to communicate to the nation of Israel. So let's begin with um, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Wow. So, God instructs Hosea to marry a prostitute to serve as an illustration for the nation of Israel. Now, we don't know, you know, if, if Hosea kind of argued with God or if he even thought this through, how this is going to play out, right? But, um, you know, how many of you would be willing to let God wreck your life just as an illustration for the nation, right? <laughs> I don't know if I would, but he did, right? Uh, verse 3. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, Name the child Jezreel, for I am about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. But I will show love to the people of Judah. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses and charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. Verse 8. After Gomer had weaned Lorumaha, she became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, Name him Loami, not my people. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. Now you've got to feel sorry for these kids, right? To be, named that, to be named like not loved and not my people, just because God chose your family to sort of illustrate a message to the, to the nation of Israel. I mean, it's like, hi, what's your name? Not loved. I mean, that'd be awful, right? But, uh, and at this point, we don't get a whole lot of detail uh, concerning these kids, which of them are actually Hosea's kids, and which of, them's, which of them are out of prostitution. But the names of the second and third born children sort of lead us to believe that those are the kids who were born out of prostitution rather than the first one. Um, and as we keep reading, that sort of seems to be the case as we keep going. Uh, verse 8. Let's, yeah, let's read verse 8 again. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Rumaha, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people, for Israel's not my people, I'm not their God. Verse 10. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then, at the place where they were told 
you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. And in that day, you will call your brothers Ami, which means my people. And you will call your sisters Rumaha, the ones I love. That's pretty cool, huh? How God sort of made that shift, right? Um, and we don't know if, you know, if Hosea actually cha- ended up changing those kids' names. I, I would hope so, but um, just to sort of follow the story. But in the next part of the story, in the next part of chapter 2, um, we have another shift. And this is where God sort of delivers his judgment, a message of judgment against um, Israel. Um, Hosea 2, verse 2. But now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her as naked as she was on the day she was born. I will leave her to die of thirst as in a dry and barren wilderness. And I will not love her children, for they were conceived in prostitution. Their mother is a shameless prostitute and became pregnant in a shameful way. She said, I'll run after other lovers and sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, and for olive oil and drinks. For this reason, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. When she runs after her lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but not find them. Then she will think, I might as well return to my husband, for I was better off with him than I am now. She doesn't realize that it was I who gave her everything she has. The grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold. But she gave all my gifts to Baal. But now I will take back the ripened grain and the new wine I generously provided each harvest season. I will take away the wool and linen clothing I gave her to cover her nakedness. I will strip her naked in public while all her lovers look on. No one else will be able to rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to her annual festivals, her new moon celebrations, and her Sabbath days. All of her appointed festivals... I will destroy the grapevines and the fig trees, things she claims her lovers gave her. I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals will eat fruit. I will punish her for all those times when she burned incense to to her images of Baal, when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot all about me, says the Lord. So this gives us a picture of the characteristic of God that we don't often like to talk about too much, right? The judgment of God. And we see this surface a lot in the Old Testament, especially in the writings of the prophets, because the prophets were always trying to steer Israel back on course when they were getting off course, just like is going on here. Israel is guilty of worshiping false gods. And God likened the sin of Israel to a wife who cheats on her husband. The reason for that is because the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife has always been an illustration of the relationship between God and his people. 
And Israel has been unfaithful to God by worshiping false gods. But then as the story continues, we get to see more characteristics of God um, be revealed, even though they're still... I mean, they're still in the old covenant. They're still having to relate, with, relate to God through the law. But as the prophecy continues, he gives them a glimpse of some different characteristics of God other than what we just saw here. Okay? Um, and remember, we talked about this in the last series. They're, they're in the Old Testament. They're in the temple model, right? They have to relate to God. And the and revelation, the revelation of God is always progressive. Have you ever heard that before, progressive revelation? What that means is that when you look at how God has revealed himself over the centuries, it's been progressive, right? From the very beginning, there was a very little revelation of God, and and then God revealed more of himself through the law and through the prophets. But then Jesus comes along, and he reveals so much more about God, and then and then he dies and ushers in the new covenant, and there's even so much more revealed about God um, and how we relate to him. And now he's about to give these people who relate to God through the law, he's about to give them a glimpse of this, these other characteristics that we get to enjoy, right? So God's message to Israel shifts from judgment to a prophetic word of love, mercy, and grace. Verse 14, but then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, You will call me my husband instead of my master. O Israel, I will wipe away the many names of Baal from your lips, and you will never mention them again. On that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground, so they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety." I will make you my wife forever, showing you the righteousness and showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. In that day I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the sky as it pleads for clouds, and the sky will answer the earth with rain. Then the earth will Answer the thirsty cries of the grain and the grapevines and the olive trees, and they will in turn answer Jezreel, God plants. At that time, I will plant a crop of Israelites and raise them for myself. I will show love to those I called not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. What's pretty cool is that in Romans chapter 9, verse 25, we see this verse show up. And where he says, where you once were not my people, you are now my people. It talks about how that was for the Gentiles. For the Gentiles who who were outside of a relationship with God. And Jesus came 
and made the two one. We read, we talked about that a few weeks or several weeks ago in our two series ago, when, and we were looking at uh, Ephesians, how God talked about how He made the two one, the Jews and the Gentiles, and and He, uh, the Book of Romans specifically references this verse in reference to the Gentiles. But this is a beautiful picture, right, of God's love and mercy and grace triumphing over his justice, right? He gave them, he, he first had a, this word of justice and judgment coming against the, the people of Israel, but then he gives this beautiful prophetic word of love and mercy and grace towards them. But the question that arises is how can a just God, how is it that a God who is just can overlook his judgment for the sake of love, mercy, and grace. Right? I mean, if, I mean, God wouldn't be a just God if he just overlooked it. Right? Like if you, if you were, um, somebody committed a crime against you, and the person who committed that crime against you went to court, and you were there to see what would happen, and the judge just let them off the hook because he felt like it. He overlooked justice and gave them mercy and grace. How would you feel? Probably wouldn't like it, right? You want justice. But if the tables were turned, you'd probably want mercy and grace yourself, right? But a judge wouldn't be just if he just kind of overlooked the offense and extended mercy and grace, right? It reminds me of the time that Jesus encountered the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Remember that story? These guys, um, these religious leaders bring this woman caught in the act of adultery and say, she was, she was caught in the act of adultery. You know, what do you say? And they've got rocks in their hands. They're ready to, to pummel her to death because by, they had full right to execute her by stoning because of what she did. That's what the law required. Jesus, the story goes on. Uh, Jesus uh, is like writing in the dirt. We don't get to know what he writes. But one, oh, and he, he, does ask this, he does ask all the men this question, he, or he makes a statement, he who, he who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone, right? And so one by one, they start dropping their stones. He, he you know, convinces them not to carry out their judgment on, on her. And then he looks at her and he says, where are all those who condemn you? They're not here. I, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But the law required that she be executed, right? That was justice. She should have died. How can Jesus look at this woman who's under the law, the law's still in effect, the new covenant hasn't been initiated yet, how does he let her off the hook? How does he not enforce God's own law? How can God be both just and merciful? Well, the answer is Jesus. And we find a beautiful picture of this in Romans chapter 3. And I love this passage in Romans 3 because this is the gospel in a nutshell. I mean, if you ever have a hard time remembering, okay, what's the gospel again? Or if you have a hard time explaining what the gospel is, this passage is for you. These seven verses. You should cut these out, put them in your purse, put them in your, your wallet, or you always have them. This is the gospel. In a nutshell. Romans 3, verse 20. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. 
And so we've talked about several times how for there to be good news, which is what the gospel means, there has to be bad news, right? This is the bad news. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised but in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Something that we just read, right? Remember how Hosea gave that glimpse of mercy and grace in between the, those two passages of judgment? Okay. So we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those in times past. The woman caught in adultery. It's a perfect example. Or the nation of Israel. He didn't wipe them out. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. How can God be both fair, I mean, just and merciful? God can be just and merciful towards us because the weight of God's judgment for our sin fell upon Jesus. Even the people who lived before Jesus, he was looking back and accounting them, including them in. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God's justice was satisfied through Jesus. So that God can extend mercy and grace to those of us who place our trust in him. I mean, how amazing is that? That's the message we get to bear. Right? That's the good news that we've been commissioned to share with people. But Hosea's story doesn't end with his message to Israel. Chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. And I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even me. This shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or a prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God 
and to David's descendant, their king. Who's that? Jesus. And in the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. Hosea's story is such an amazing story because it transcends his own life and the life of his family that God used as an illustration. It transcends even the illustrative message that God was sending to the nation of Israel. The story of Hosea is, is a picture of God's amazing love for us. And one of the things that this story beautifully illustrates through Hosea is that God pursues you. God pursues you. Just like God telling Hosea to pursue his unfaithful wife, God pursued you. He pursued you. And even when you turn away and seek seek fulfillment of other things, he still continues to pursue you. And one of the things you have to know about this story to understand the depth of the meaning of all that is that Gomer never did anything to deserve Hosea's love. Right? In fact, she not only doesn't do anything to deserve his love, she does, it seems that she's doing everything she can to sabotage the relationship. Right? She's at no point begging for his mercy. She, she doesn't initiate the restoration of their relationship. But Hosea pursues her and buys her back. And the same is true for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. When? While we were still sinners. When we did nothing to earn his love. We weren't trying to initiate restoration of the relationship. We weren't begging for his mercy. He died for us while we were still sinners. What an amazing love. That no matter how far you've gone or matter, no matter what you've done, he pursues you. The second thing this story beautifully illustrates is that Jesus paid the price to redeem you from the bondage of sin. So Hosea, obedient to God, pursues his wife. And I don't know if he had to go to some seedy part of town to get to her, but he pursues her. He gets to where she's at, and he has to buy her back. Verse 2 says, So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. So in essence, she has gone back to her old way of life. Um, She has sold herself, put herself back in bondage, and, and subjected herself to the yoke of slavery that she was once under. She now belongs to someone else. And that's why he had to buy her back. Now, when you hear the word redeem, you typically think of it in a spiritual context, right? Because that's pretty much all we've been exposed to. But in the Old Testament, the word redeem did not have a spiritual meaning at all. It was purely an economic transaction, right? It wasn't until the New Testament when, when the word redeem had spiritual significance because of what Jesus did for us. So when the Old Testament talks about redemption there were always three implications. First, redemption implied a person was in slavery or held captive by a master. Right? She allowed herself to go back into slavery, um, and we tend to do that 
in a spiritual sense, right? Um, just like when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he says, do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, right? And we have this tendency to do that. It impl- the second thing it implied is, is that it implied a ransom or price must be paid to secure freedom, right? If, if somebody was in bondage, in order for them to be set free, something had to be paid. The price had to be paid to secure the freedom. And the third thing is that a human liaison must act to secure the redemption. In other words, the person who was in bondage doesn't have the means or the power to set themselves free. They can't buy themselves out, right? They need someone else to intercede on their behalf. So whenever you see the word redemption in the Old Testament, that's what's going on. But again, like we said in the beginning, the Old Testament is an illustrative type and shadow of spiritual realities, right? So this whole idea of buying someone out of slavery pointed to what Jesus was going to do for all of us. Look at Galatians verse 4, or chapter 4, 4 and 5. But when the, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. All of us were in bondage. We were all in bondage to, to sin. There's... There was a price that had to be paid to secure our freedom. And the most amazing thing is that Jesus is not only the mediator, he's, he's not only the one who, who the, the liaison who set us free, he was the price. He was the price and the mediator that set us free. He didn't just show up to, and throw down some cash to get us out. He gave himself as the price. He was the human liaison, and he was the price to be paid. Amazing, right? So you're pursued by God. You have been redeemed by God. And then the third thing in Hosea's story is that God restores your relationship with him. Despite Gomer's actions, Hosea loved his wife again. And because of his actions, the relationship was restored, right? You know, as um, leaders of of this church, my wife and I help a lot of people go through a lot of things. Um, But one of the things that's most difficult and just most heartbreaking to help people through is when there is infidelity in the marriage. And... You know, Scripture does give infidelity in the marriage pretty much the only excuse for divorce. But what's been the most amazing thing to see in our time in, in our time in ministry and helping people through that um, is not that they get divorced, but that they work on the marriage and make it work. Kind of like the story of Hosea and Gomer. It's so amazing to see God move in such tragedy 
and where the one who's been victimized by being the one who was cheated on has perfect excuse to get out of the marriage, when they stick in and fight for the marriage, they're in a very, very real way being just like Hosea was and just like God was towards the nation of Israel. And it's so amazing to see God move in that capacity and see what, what looked like complete devastation in a marriage turn out to be something beautiful and amazing. But what about the person who's being restored, right? Do you think that person goes through some difficulty as well? Do you think maybe they, they are plagued with and burdened with guilt and condemnation? You think they're they're plagued with shame? Of course they are. They're, I'm sure they feel incredible shame for their actions, and they're burdened with guilt. And and for them to actually be restored, they have to actually receive that overwhelming love that they don't deserve, right? Like like Gomer did not deserve the love that Jose gave her. But she, at some point, had to receive his love in order for the relationship to be restored, right? You have to receive the overwhelming love of God to experience restoration in your relationship with him. Because this, this, this is how it plagues us in, in our relationship with God, too. We, we look back on our lives and we think, you know, we're plagued by guilt and shame and condemnation and the enemy is there to make sure that that happens, Right? And when, that, and, and when we don't let love free us from those things, then it's, it's so difficult to not go back, right? Um, there's a beautiful verse in, in Isaiah 38 that says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. Why? For you have cast all my sins behind your back. In love, that person was delivered from the pit of destruction because all the sin was cast behind. In other words, there's no more guilt, no more shame, no more condemnation. And that's what the New Testament declares. There is therefore no condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have loved my soul out of the pit, right? I mean, you, you can't, so you can't guilt and shame someone out of the pit, right? I mean, you might be able to guilt and shame someone into some different behavior, but do you think that behavior will stick? No, it doesn't. It doesn't stick. Um, and, and, you know, we've all done that. We've all tried to guilt someone into different behavior. Religion does that. You know, what we talked about in the last series, the temple model, that's what it did. Um, I could even try to guilt you guys into doing something, and you might do it. It might stick for a few days, and then it might not. Um, but if guilt and shame is the primary motivator to change your behavior, it's only a matter of time before you go back to the behavior, because shame keeps you from going back to the pit. Why? Because shame makes you feel like you're not worthy of the love. Makes you feel like you don't deserve the love. And yes, you don't deserve it, but, it, it, but the worst part of it is it makes you feel unworthy of it. 
But see, there's a difference between love because it has worth and love that adds worth. Right? For example, I, I love my truck because it has worth to me, right? It gets me from A to B. I like that I can sit high and over other cars compared to my little Honda. Um, you know, I love my truck for lots of different reasons. It has value to me. But when my kids were little, um, they had, like, through different stages of their life, they had these little toys that, in my estimation, were pretty worthless, right? Like, um, our son had this um, Beanie Baby dog, and he named it Strong Dog, right? And he loved that thing. And when Strong Dog got lost, I mean, the whole family was looking for Strong Dog because, you know, it was, it was devastation, right? Because he loved it so much, that thing had value, right? It was all hands on deck finding Strong Dog. If he got left at the store, we had to go back and find it, right? Because it was important. He had worth because of his love for it. And the same is true with us and God. His love makes you worthy of it. Does that make sense? You don't deserve it, but because he loves you, you are worthy to be loved. And that eliminates guilt and shame. You have to be able to receive his love. And realize, yeah, you don't deserve it. But because he loves you with an overwhelming love, that makes you worthy. And shame leads us to believe we're not worthy of love, grace, and forgiveness. And it pulls us back to where we're most comfortable. Right? That's why so many people have such a hard time getting set free because of shame and guilt. But God gets us out of the pit of destruction by his love. While shame always pulls you back to where you think you belong, God's love says differently. And it wraps itself around you and draws you up out of the pit of destruction, out of destructive behaviors. See, God's love for you is not based on your goodness. God's love for you is not based on your faithfulness. God's love for you is not based on anything you bring to the table. His love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness is a gift. And it simply has to be received. And when you can receive it, and allow it to penetrate beneath the layers of guilt and shame, then you can become the person that he created you to be. Amen? Let's pray.